Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and, and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. A long history of trauma, grief, loss and cultural disconnection means mental health issues for Indigenous people can be complex. Culturally appropriate support that recognises the connection between physical health, mental health, spiritual needs and social and emotional well-being is crucial. This week's podcast guest, Chelsea Wadigo, is a Mununjali and South Sea Island woman with over 20 years of experience working with Indigenous health as a health worker and researcher. Her work has drawn attention to the role of race in the production of health inequalities. She's a prolific writer and public intellectual, having written for Indigenous X, NITV, The Guardian and The Conversation. She's a founding board member of Inala Wangara, an Indigenous community organisation within her own community and a director of the Institute of Collaborative Race Research. Chelsea believes that by sharing lived experiences to create change, Power can be restored to victims in foregrounding Indigenous sovereignty over settler sensibilities. Stay tuned as Chelsea joins me to share her experiences as an Indigenous woman, reflects on her upbringing and delves into the importance of storytelling in our approach to Indigenous well-being. Hello listeners and thanks for tuning in for another episode. With me today it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you Professor Chelsea Wadigo. Chelsea, welcome. Thank you for having me. No worries at all. Thanks very much for coming and spending some time with me. Tell us a little bit about your mob and where you're from. Yep, so I'm Mananjali and South Sea through the Wadigo and Williams family. And uh, I've got family all, I guess, up the east coast of Queensland, northern New South Wales. Wow. East coast of, okay. So does that stretch down into where, like around Around Tweed Tweed? Heads, yep. Okay. Got, uh, my nan and pop lived there for a long time and family up around Bowen and Eyre. But I grew up, born and raised on Yagara country and... Anala in the outer suburb of Brisbane is home for me and my family. There's uh, a heavy Indigenous community there in Anala. Tell us about the, the role that's played in shaping you. Yeah, look, I married an Anala boy and so we, we, we decided to raise our family there because of the, the sense of community it could offer our kids, that sense of belonging and, you know, just seeing blackfellas every day just in Nadoc Week. And our yeah. kids got to go to, you know, a Murray kindergarten, play football with, you know, mob every, you know, every week. So yeah, it's such a strong and vibrant community and 
Typically places like Anala are not seen as rich places. In fact, they're the poorest neighbourhoods, but blackfellas make them the richest. Yeah, they've got that strong sense of community, don't they? Oh, definitely. Sense of identity and, and just being family, you know, and I love that we're able to give our kids that sense of belonging through being part of that community. Tell us about the importance of culture in framing who you are today and, and how it's influenced what pathway you've taken in your professional career. Yeah, I think people typically think of culture, specifically talk about you know Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture as something that is ancient and something that's past. But culture as I know it is living in the everyday. And for me, being connected to People and place are central to my sense of well-being, my, my sense of, of culture. It's not something you visit in a museum. It's something no. that you live that's embodied every day. And I noticed that my children at, at some point in their high school years went to a private school outside of our neighbourhood and they really struggled. And one of my children talked about how, you know, there's a way of being here and having to get on the train and then remember there's another way of being when they go to school mm. And, you know, people talk about code switching, but it's a bit more than that. And so, you know, my kids end up returning back to, to high school in, in Anala because there was a sense of not having to be someone else. You could just be. Um, yeah. So culture is, is just a way of being in the world and how we give meaning to it without having to explain ourselves all the time. And in today's world where there's so many distractions, I mean, there's so much history in your culture. Yeah. How do you live that every day without getting distracted by the day-to-days that are going on? Because, you, like you said, you want to practice and live it every day. And it, is, is it getting harder to do in the society that we live in? I think certainly as our community grows and our communities are less defined geographically, you know, places like Anala are not everywhere. Our, our community is spreading out and um, so that everydayness of community and cultural connection sometimes requires more conscious effort, even, you know, being connected to different communities that we may have historical and traditional ties with. It, it is a conscious and deliberate effort, particularly in a society in which our culture is not valued. We don't see representations of us that reflect who we are. We see colonial representations of Aboriginal culture, which often serve to dispossess rather than connect us to who we are, because it's a representation that doesn't reflect our lived reality. But yeah, I it's something that we have to think about all the time. And it's also the confluence of race and culture. So in being in this place, we can't talk about culture without talking about the violence of race and what that does to us psychologically and how we see ourselves. So there's this balance of remembering who we are and culture grounds us in that as armour against the kind of racial violence we encounter that suggests that we're not worthy, that we're not even black enough, that, you know, all of these things that society tells us about who we are, about our culture, a lot of it is racialized. I'm keen to explore that. I know you have a lot to say on that. Um, but before we get into that, you've got over two decades experience working in the, uh, in the health, as a health worker, but yeah. specifically Indigenous health. What made you want to go in and, and, and seek that profession for your career? Yeah, look, I was a disillusioned 17-year-old when I finished high school. Didn't know what I wanted to do, except I wanted to work with my people. So I didn't necessarily want to be a health professional, but health was the vehicle for which I could work for my mob. And I did this small undergrad degree program that was specifically in Indigenous health. And I got, you know, I graduated at 19 with an undergrad degree where I spent three years in conversation with other blackfellas, almost mm. exclusively. And 
I think what what was of interest to me was not you know medical science necessarily, but this this matter of survival. My children don't know a grandfather, so when I talk about survival, it's in a in a literal sense. What are the necessary social conditions in order for my children to become grandparents, and so that their grandchildren know them? So I see. So. Did you do you see that the challenges though that they're facing in as regards to their health and well-being? Did you see that and think, well, hang on, we need to do a better job, but we need to come at this from an indigenous angle to yeah. connect? Yeah. So the funny thing is, and it still seems weird to say this, but when I was seventeen and first started uni, I didn't realise we were so sick because they weren't the stories that we told at our kitchen table. We, we you know, we heard stories of Annie's daughter who lived to over a hundred despite everything she lived through. So we always knew survival at our table. I didn't know that we were so were so unwell, so disadvantaged, so dysfunctional. And there is a truth to the fact that we're dying earlier of conditions that we shouldn't be dying of. What's, I guess, concerned me in the space of Indigenous health is that it hasn't been necessarily emancipatory. The investments in Indigenous health have been largely, you know, describing our death rather than ensuring our survival. And so I work in Indigenous health, very critical of the investments over these last 20 years or so, in that it hasn't been as committed to our survival as we are as blackfellas. And this is despite the fact that Indigenous-led responses to health have been the most innovative, the most successful. If you look at the model of primary health care that's come out of our AMSs, we know what's necessary. The sad reality is, is we are still not given control over our health and our well-being, and I think we need to think about Indigenous health not as sick black bodies, but as oppressive power structures that make this possible and attend to those. And so that's been my shift in in how I've come to think about Indigenous health is not so much about blood pressures and blood sugar levels yeah. and monitoring and surveilling black people, but looking at the systems and how they work to produce these kinds of outcomes. So this, the failings systemically looking at this and saying, well, the system's failing us. Yeah. Okay. So And not just the health system, you know, yeah. the education, all, how all of these things work to make this seem like it's perfectly natural. And if you think about this place this, this, that, that we are living in, it's all predicated in the idea that we were never here. Mm. And for the last 200 years or so, we've seen the discourse of destined to die still prevail and we even see it in coroner's reports of blackfellas who've died of preventable conditions in the health system in which a coroner determines that it was a matter of natural causes. This, this is working so powerfully that, that there's an inevitability to, the, to, to Indigenous ill health that we see and we see it in the Closing the Gap refresh after a decade of failed policy. They decide not to change it but to refresh it. Now that tells us something about the violence of this place. And, and this stems from you know, many, many years of this that have uh, the roots from colonialism. Let's talk about that, and because um, I know you recently published your book, Another Day in, in the Colony, only recently this year, yes. right? Tell us about that and the inspiration behind that. So it's a series of essays that I wrote. I had kind of bits of keynotes and, and, and pieces of work that I had been doing, but I wrote it last year at a time when my body stopped. I was in the midst of two race discrimination cases, one against the University of Queensland, who was my employer, and the other against the Queensland Police Service. And, and I was fighting. I felt strong, you know. However, my body stopped. 
and I had to take time out and I took time out by writing a book. But I, I made sense of what was happening to me in the course of writing and that's that's why I write is to make sense of this world, to make sense yeah. of the things that are meant to confound us and I find power and strength in doing that. So I wrote it from that place and yeah, about a year ago now and the idea was to um it was a book written just for blackfellas not that other people aren't reading it but <laughs> I, I wrote with the audience in mind of being mob and speaking to the everydayness of colonial violence in a way that we could relate to and to reveal how this works in the everyday yeah and so it's it's been had a great reception and it's yeah it's exciting to have it out in the world what have been some of the key insights from that? I've read a fair few reviews, uh, very overwhelmingly positive and the amount of the impact that, that your book has had. But tell us what do you think were some of the key insights that were embedded in the book? Yeah, look, I, I wanted to show that I grew up in a house with a white mother and what Huggins refers to as a cosmetically apparent Aboriginal father. And so I got to see how race worked every day as a child and how they were treated differently when I was in their presence, either together or separately. But we had a kind of race consciousness growing up where we would we would have to, we'd be ten times better and that we would have to be and that we could be in order to not transcend race but to kind of get entry to. And what I want to do with the book is... is what well, I do with it is talk about racial violence, but the psychology of how we strategize around it. And I'm no longer in that camp of trying to outperform and outrun racism. So I have a concluding chapter called F Hope, mm-hmm. and it uses Paul Beatty's The Sellout. Um, he talks about nihilism and the futility of, of hope. And what I I kind of share is that there's a different strategy for fighting racism and it's not in hope or in a waiting or an idea of progress but in our turning up and being sovereign and standing still and that our validation as as, as a people is not to be found in those verdicts that we, we already we have our own power and so the book speaks about racism and racial violence but ultimately speaks to the power and strength of blackfellas. Because it's a book not just not just focusing on the problems. And it's absolutely... So I actually talk to the fact that in Indigenous literature or the, the, the genre of Indigenous writing, whether it sits in fiction or non-fiction, always places us as a problem. And those texts often come up with some sort of solution. And I'm really clear that this is not a problems and solutions book. It's a strategy book that speaks to the souls of blackfellas first and foremost. Yeah. And it's an interesting distinction, isn't it? Because it's quite different. Yeah, there's a whole literary genre of the Aboriginal problem. It's It really is a thing and because there, there's an appetite and a market for it. And what I did with this book is I refused to appeal to that market. I, I wasn't – and I, there's like there's very little footnotes explaining some of the cultural references because I'm not, I'm not doing any educative work around this. And part of writing the book was that most of my day labouring, most of my intellectual work and the best of it was not given to my mob. It was teaching largely non-Indigenous people about us and so I'd get home and my family and my community got the least of me. And as a black scholar, I want them to have the best of me. Mm. And whatever's left over, then fine. And so it was, that's what I liked about spending time writing the book was to think about, well, what is it that I want to give to my children that they can give to theirs when I'm long gone to understand this place? And how prevalent is racial violence in today's society? 
everywhere, every day, hence another day in the colony. And it manifests in all kinds of ways from the overt, the explicit, the most brutal violence that we see. I mean, there's not a week goes by that we are not watching grieving families outside coroner's courts waiting for some form of justice. So not just deaths in custody, but deaths in hospitals, places where they're meant to care for us. And then there's the everyday racial violence. And perhaps what I speak more to in the book around this kind of violence is where there aren't the bruises, but the wounds are there nonetheless. What racism does to us psychologically Mm. in um, making us feel disconnected because race was the vehicle for dispossession in this place, that we were inferior, that we weren't human. And there are people who still believe that. And even if they like blackfellas, still are wedded to this idea that we are less than, that we're inferior, that we're not capable of managing our own affairs. The fact that we don't have control over our own affairs, the fact that our people are still fighting for land back mm. is, is a testament to the prevalence of racial violence in this country. And if you look at other settler colonial um, nations, Australia is the worst. Yeah. You know, they fine-tuned what they were doing and by the time they got here they were most efficient and... We, you know, the last 20 years, the, the policy era in Indigenous affairs is literally called a new paternalism. This is where we're at right now. And with the book, what I try and show is that this idea that we've progressed because more black fellas have hit the middle class or, you know, we've got the first of her tribe in this institution or doing this and, you know, breaking open the, the, the doors. We still don't have control as a people over our affairs. And that's the problem. Not us. And so what do you think are some solutions moving forward for this? Like how do we make, how does society, how should it be? Look, I still don't know how to make, get a colonising people to be less colonising. Power is never ceded. And so I I don't know what to do when it comes to appeals to, you know, settlers. Where I invest my labour now is building black collectives building black communities and looking at how we strategize and, and do things on our terms irrespective of what the other fellas do. And I found there's much joy in the work at the margins of building those spaces that we want for ourselves. Hence I'm on the board of a community controlled organization in my own community in Alawonga and we do some really great things on our terms mm. and how we provide service to our community that is unlike any other service in our region. It's why I um, uh, helped build an institute for collaborative race research so I could do some intellectual work that the university wouldn't allow me to do because it was attending to racial violence. So I'm interested in building our spaces on our terms and the joy of it, even though there's so much resistance against it, even though it's under-resourced. And I think that's, for us mob as blackfellas, that's, that's our solution is we just need to be sovereign. We just yeah. need to do our, do our thing and... If they catch up, fine. But so many of us have invested so much labour in the appeal to that we don't actually get to do the work. Tony Morrison talks about racism being a distraction and it is a distraction to appeal to a people whose existence is predicated upon your non-existence. And that that sort of thing, I mean, it's not going to change overnight, is it? No. And it's never going to change because in a settler colonial state, the settlers never leave. So we are always going to be in this relationship and there's no sense that that's the nature of that relationship is going to change. I only had to look at Indigenous affairs and the last 200 years and where we're at right now, despite the evidence base. You know, I came to health research thinking if I just brought the evidence that we could then get the investments in what we needed and, 
you know, that's how it works. And it's, it's no, this is not how it works. It doesn't matter the evidence base. This is a relationship. And so now it's all a matter of not so much of evidence but of strategy. How do we carve out the, the conditions that we know are necessary for our well-being and get on with that? And it certainly sounds like your approach is really just empowering, taking back control and just saying, you know what, if, they don't, if they're not hearing us yet, if they're not ready for it, let's just do our own thing anyway and for the sake of our own people and take control and, um, and really stand up for ourselves. Absolutely. And, and it's hard. Look, it's hard work. I know that the kind of work that I do places me at the margins in even in Indigenous health space, despite the research grants and the, and the peer review publications, I'm positioned as a kind of political project as opposed to a, a scholar. But that's okay, I don't care. I can be defined however they like, but yeah. I'm still going to do the work and do the work on our terms. And so part of the, the, the thing with the book was to get more mob realising their own power in just turning up and doing things in their own terms as opposed to trying, as opposed to believing in the lies that we're told that if we just are good enough, if we just have the evidence, if we just do all of these things, then somehow we will be will be free or, you know, get the necessary resources that we need. So it's just a, a relinquishing of, of some of these ideas that have been inscribed upon our bodies since the day we were born and remembering who we are and where we come from and that um, our people before us have always done things on our terms. And, yeah, there's the, the freedom in not having to work ten times harder mm-hmm. just to break even. How do we go about, I mean, when you look at, if you look at the history, how do we, because, I mean, at the moment Indigenous is a minority. Yep. How do we continue to let the voice come out and to ensure that future generations, it's, it's not drowned out. It's not. It's not going to fade off into you know it never happen because we want to make sure that we maintain that culture and the story and the and the history. What do you think moving forward is the best way to do that? Well, I mean, Blackfellas have kept those stories alive. You know, we've no. we've told our stories and we've passed them down. We're we're an oral culture. So there's there's no chance of Blackfellas losing that. It's the steadfast refusal of the settlers to know their own story. You know, it was like, what, over a decade ago where Henry Reynolds had, why weren't we told this, you know, no one seems to know about this history, yet all can trace an ancestry that is directly connected to the oppression of our people. You know, so it's, 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 it's I think this is a matter for settlers to work out a way to be in relationship with their themselves in how they came to be in this place. And unfortunately, when it comes to truth-telling, what happens is there's a foregrounding of, you know, settler feelings rather than an honesty about this place, that it was, it was founded on violence. And until we deal with that violence, it's going to continue. Yeah, I just, I, I don't know how you could come to a place and pretend that there weren't people here and spend the next 200 years trying to decimate that people and then say you love this place. I mean, even the, you know, blowing up of sacred sites, like if Australians are so proud of this country, then then why don't they own their own story? Yeah, the actions aren't marrying with, the, with what they're saying. Yeah, and I mean, and in these stories, the thing that makes me a bit wild when um, there's this, this refusal to be honest about our history is that in these stories, it's not even about black victims. In our story of our history, there are black heroes. 
So when you deny this this history, you're denying mm. our stories of our heroes, our fierce warriors, our activists. There are such there are amazing stories to be told about how black fellas have managed to be still here after two centuries. You know, to be still here in this place, even as three percent that we're still here, says something to the power of black fellas that they couldn't get rid of us. And in looking at that history, there is a history of us that history of us that we could be really proud of and I don't under, I don't understand why there is there's this refusal well I do but there shouldn't be yeah um, if if this country really believes in the in the values it espouses if those who stand and sing that anthem mm. if you really believe that then we need to fix the situation and it's more than a sorry day it's more than you know all these other things like you said there's some inconsistencies with what they say and what they do. Yeah, I mean, I have five children and the violence they experience every day at school in terms of what the curriculum tells them about themselves, even in 2021. You know, in history, my um, child had to engage in a debate over the Mabo decision as though it's something that's up for discussion. Even, the you know, the highest court decided mm. and still we're contesting it. We're still, well, was it right? They had to do a discussion about, you know, Aboriginal history by speaking to people and sharing those thoughts on a discussion board. So my um, child, having spoken to their nan about her story, then got to see all of these comments from classmates about, well, they should just get over it. You know, and, and so I've had to deal with all of my kids coming through school of having to deal with the violence inflicted upon them of having to fix what they've been taught and having to go up to the school and saying, stop stop doing this to our kids. It sounds like if we wait for that to catch up, we'll be waiting a long time. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so congratulations on taking it in your own hands and doing something about it. Tell us about the psychological impact that blackfellas have had upon them since passed through generations because the the racial violence and the stuff that you speak about is not just physical, but let's talk about the psychological impacts. Well, I think dispossession is more than the stuff of land. And I've been interested in the dispossessing effects of, of racism and, yeah, how we come to know ourselves. And and I've, I've just had to do that because I've been forced into positions like that. I think for, for a lot of blackfellas, there has been this kind of... It's like... An, it, it, well, it is an abusive relationship, like we're trapped in an abusive relationship. And if you think about abusive relationships, you don't tell the victim just to just be better and, and, and they're going to treat you, treat you right. You tell them to leave. But we're not leaving. Mm. We can't leave here. So every day, everywhere, we're having to be in relationship with an abuser who insists they have the best of intentions for us, who insists they care. And sometimes blackfellas believe that. And in the course of my work, what I've seen is too many blackfellas betrayed by the idea that colonial institutions care and the realisation that they don't. So in the course of my work, having publicly taken race discrimination cases, I often get approached by blackfellas who are experiencing racial violence. And what's interesting, the most, most common have been in the workplace and it has always struck me because some of the mob that I meet have had, you know, really challenging upbringings, have had a lot of adversity, but the violence in the workplace is what breaks them. And I'm not sure it's because, you know, our jobs give us a sense of self-worth and value and purpose and we can provide for our families. And when we are forced to think that we can't do all those things, 
that's what what mm. breaks us. But I think there's something there's a movement going on right now in terms of blackfellas standing up against um, racism in the workplace and the absence of unions who aren't supporting the black workers. But I saw it in my own home. My former husband was a police officer in his own community of Anala for 15 years. And, you know, he had to retire on medical grounds as a result of the racial violence, not the physical violence of being a copper, mm. the racial violence of his own workmates and the indignities he suffered every day. And he became a police officer having watched me get locked up in a country town one night uh, on a street charge and he wanted to change change the culture of policing and, and what happened was it changed him instead mm. in a way that made him barely recognisable to his own family. And so there's something really violent about this place in that even when blackfellas come to these institutions to be the change, to be yeah. the solution, only to be betrayed by it, only to be broken by it. And I don't think people realise the extent in which black workers are coming home to their families broken mm. by the everydayness of this stuff. Mm. And it's, it's happening everywhere. Everywhere. And, you know, the, the Indigenous Advancement Strategy is all about kids to school, parents to work and safer communities. When our kids are at school, they experience violence. When we're at work, we experience violence. But this is the policy ideological framework that we're trapped in right now. I mean, it's gaslighting. You know, yeah. like this is it's, – it's a really toxic relationship that we have with the state. And the tragedy is is that people, people don't care because they're doing fine. And so that's why I'm not appealing to, to for, for care. I'm I'm in conversation with Mob about how do we how do we organise, how do we strategise, and how do we care for each other. Certainly sounds like you're doing that. Uh, Trying. So <laughs> you're doing a great job. Tell us. Obviously, there's been a number of people that have inspired you along your journey. Uh, you mentioned earlier on Artie Dora. Tell us a little bit about some of those people that have inspired you throughout your journey. Yeah, well, I think my father, who, who would share the stories of, you know, um, family members. My father, I'm not sure he inspired me, but he helped train me. We used to, um, you know, get the curry mail, you know, the paper each morning. And he would not make me, but he would debate most news items and we would clear the kitchen in the course of those discussions everyone ran but I had a place where I was allowed to challenge him and I was required to hold my own and that training ground at the kitchen table of questioning the world so that when I left the front door I wouldn't readily accept the lies that would be told and through the course of my life I've been blessed with senior blackfellas who have done that in my father's absence. I think about Dr Anilila Watson who generously read every single page of the book who got me to rethink this idea of survival versus living around thinking about persistence rather than resistance and just gifted me with her critique so that I could the work could be stronger. Um, Uncle Shane Coggle, who's a respected elder in my own community, who has always managed to appear at times when I needed to see him and just looked after me and my family when he didn't have to. And so it's interesting, like my intellectual idols, senior blackfellas who may not hold academic titles in the academy but are, are, are our greatest philosophers who are sharing so generously their thinking to help us, the next generation, do what we're meant to do for the generation that follows us. It's beautiful. Like I mean, you've been so lucky, haven't you, to be able to have been surrounded by those people? Yeah, and, and I think it's 
being open to the learning mm. and, and receiving that. You know, there are times where I give critique and it's not always welcome. <laughs> you know, it's pathologised as violent and it's like, no, it's a gift. Because if I don't care about you, I'm not going to bother with you. If I, if I love you enough, I will tell the truth. Mm. And, and truth-telling is an act of love. It hurts. Love hurts too. But it's, it's a gift. And so I think that we all have these people in our life that are gifted to us but not all of us are ready to receive those gifts. So it's about being open then to those relationships. You know, the with Annie Lil reading the book, that came about through a chance catch-up at a kitchen table and that then be, began a relationship in the course of writing the story and, and so it's being open to receive. Tell us, Chelsea, moving forward, what and I imagine there's a lot of things coming up, but um, tell us what are the what are the big plans? What's the what's going on? Yeah, so I've got a few plans. Well, I fortunately last year was awarded a quite a large ARC discovery project. So it's a five year plan, and in, it's to build Indigenous health humanities as a whole new field of research. So I, my work has been at the margins and I have been in, you know, critical Indigenous studies, I've been in the health sciences and my work doesn't fit neatly with any particular discipline. And so I decided we're just going to build our own field and make it home. And I'm fortunate to have a team of amazing scholars that have been my community in the midst of all of the um, stuff I've experienced in the academy. And so it's about thinking about Indigenous survival not just in terms of the, the medical doctor and the epidemiologist as, as the, the knowers in this space, it's bringing in the anthropologist, the journalist, the artist, the activist, mm. all of the kinds of knowledges that we need and kind of rating them for what we need to do the kind of courageous intellectual work that's going to change the social, political, material conditions that we're living in. And so for the next five years, we're looking at how to build an intellectual community and build these collectives. So we'll be doing writing retreats and, and bringing people together to think together as opposed to the isolated scholar just submitting peer-reviewed journal publications that no one reads yeah. except other academics. And looking at how do we develop academics as public intellectuals not this pretense of objective and partial observers to anything, but recognising that knowledge is about changing our social world for the better and that we need more than an evidence base. We need to understand how to, how to, how to talk to journalists, how to write editorials, not just the peer-reviewed paper, um, how to be fierce and courageous in our scholarship. So it's a really exciting time for the next few years of building a community of people to do this work or otherwise we call them an army, to do the kind of... Because I believe in the academy in the sense of I believe in knowledge and the power of knowledge to change things. The current arrangement in terms of how knowledge is understood and who gets to be knowers, I, I, I re reject that idea. But I'm really excited about going, well, how do we build um, our intellectual community on our terms? Um, we'll be doing like a, um, a podcast to bring in people in conversation to build this field so that you don't have to have a PhD mm. in order to be engaged in this kind of work. So yeah, community building intellectually. It sounds, uh, that's going to be a lot of work, but it's, yep. it certainly sounds like you're up for the challenge and you've got a great team with you. Tell us about, I mean, with it, it's such an important thing to do, but is it destined for, for community leaders? Is it for kids growing up? Like what's the, 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 out res the end result with that? 
Yeah, look, I think, it, well, it's about it's about changing our social world and, and working out ways that knowledge can kind of do that. It's about building a community of scholars that w- are working on these terms, scholars that are not appealing to the centre, that are not um, seeking to uphold the violence of their own disciplines. Yeah. So it's community in terms of building our scholars up but also then creating a training ground for um, our thinkers wherever they reside. And I'm really interested in what... How, what intellectual work can be put to work for the various political and legal projects that our mob are advancing. And so a lot of my work around race involves things like reporting to criminal inquiries or Mm. helping inform sort of legal responses to racial injustice. And that's the work that excites me. It's not the peer-reviewed paper in the A-ranked journal. It is how is this work being put to work and of service to our people first and foremost. It's the importance of that application, isn't it? So it's not knowing something's cool, but yeah. what do we do with it and how do we actually inflict real change? Yeah, and I'm trying to build a community of scholars that are not seeking validation from academic institutions, not appealing to the centre, that are not trying to climb the hierarchy of the academy. Instead, how, how are we relational as, as, as thinkers? Um, and how are we in relationship with our own community of who are the subjects of our research and thinking instead of our community is not as subjects but as a people we have to be of service to first and foremost regardless of what our institution thinks of us. And I've had a, a pretty rough time over the last few years in terms yeah. of the, you know, I'm a former university and what what held me during that time was that irrespective of what room they hid me on campus and how terrible the conditions were even with my research grants that the work was was doing its work Uh, you know I remember I was awarded a 1.8 million dollar research grant and I had to pack up my office and drive it home because they couldn't find an office on campus for me and I remember that day and just remembering that my self-worth as a scholar was not bound up in what how that institution saw me because they refused to see to see me, even find a place for me as my employer. And this happens not just to me, this happens to a lot of scholars who are who do this kind of work. And the goal then of building community is that community will hold you when the institution exercises its violence. Um, that's why communities are rich places. Yeah. They hold us in the most dire circumstances and we have to think about then how do we, how are we good community members back, not just extractive, yeah. but what do we do as good community members in the academy for each other? And at the end of the day, that's why you're doing it. Absolutely. So, I mean, if you're doing it for the community, you're doing it with the community, then who needs who needs yeah. the other stuff? I mean, we've got to pay the bills, but <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's yeah. Just Saeed talks about the exiled intellectual and finding you know the finding joy and freedom in those spaces, in those margins. And, mm. I mean, it's why I live in Anala. I find beauty and joy in the most poorest place mm. because it's so rich with that sense of community. Well, Chelsea, you certainly had to overcome your more than your fair share of challenges in, in your career so far. And it certainly sounds like you're well and truly on your own path doing blazing a trail for people to come with you. We thank you for the work that you're doing and looking forward to hearing more about what you're up to in future years. But uh, tell everybody, how can they get in touch with you if they want to touch base and hear more about what you're doing? Yeah, sure. I can be, I'm at QUT, so you can look me up and send me an email. I'm also on Twitter at Dr. C. Wadigo. Feel free to get in touch and yeah. 
Josh, it's been very insightful. I've loved uh, our discussion and finding out all about you and your, your history of culture and what you've been up to professionally. I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.